0: And worship team, we'll open your Bible to Malachi, chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. We'll read down through chapter 3, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew in front of you. And you'll find this on page uh, 676 or 713, depending on which printing of that you have. And if you don't know where Malachi is, uh, it's back in that part of the Bible where all the pages are stuck together because you don't ever read that. Um, So just kidding about that, I hope. But um, so it's the last book of the New Testament. So if you turn to Matthew and hang a left, you just got to go back a couple of pages. You'll find Malachi uh, chapter two. As we've already considered, Advent is a season of waiting. Uh, It means coming, but waiting for his coming. So we commemorate essentially the, the waiting for his first coming during this season while we also are waiting for his second coming we are presently waiting for that return and that's the season that we mark here and malachi is written to people who sort of got tired of waiting because god they thought um, should pour out justice upon their enemies and he hadn't done that yet and and So they're a little bit fed up with waiting. And justice, of course, is what they wanted. And justice is a dominant theme in our day as well. Uh, You know, there are competing views, of course, of what justice would look like, how that ought to be applied and to whom. But it's a a theme just about at every term. The word is almost... uh, overused in places. But there are calls for criminal justice, right? Even, even justice to be applied to politicians who might have been involved in wrongdoing. There is, uh, we call for, you know, justice for the unborn. And then you have in other um, circles or whatever calls for economic justice and environmental justice and social justice and what all of those seem to have in common is that we think justice needs to be applied to the other guy right we want justice it's as if we would say we want one nation under God individual with liberty and justice to you but of course that's not the way divine justice works, is it? Divine justice is applied, and pardon the analogy here, but it's applied more like chemotherapy than radiation. I mean, we don't get to call down God's judgment on a target that we would name. Okay, it's system-wide that he sees injustice perfectly. He has a, a perfect view of it. In other words, he sees evil for what it is. He sees injustice for what it is. And when he brings righteous, righteousness to bear on it, it will bear universally. And so, are you sure you want justice? Are you sure you want justice? That's the title of this morning's message from Malachi 2. Verse 17 through 3, 5. I hope you've found it by now. If not, I think we'll have the words on the screen. But just to remind ourselves that it is God's word that we're listening to, I'm going to ask you, as always, if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 17, read now the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years." Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you as always for the privilege of not only coming into your presence, but in hearing from you through the scriptures. It is our belief that this is your word, inspired every jot and tittle of it by your spirit and that you give life and power to it. And so we ask today that you would do that. You know every need of every heart in here. Lord, we want you to be exalted, honored, and glorified. And so, Lord, we pray to that end that you would speak your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, and for your glory. And, Lord, I just ask that you would move me out of the way and use me as a vessel to communicate what we need to hear today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Malachi was written after the Jews returned from exile in Babylon. And if you're not familiar with Jewish history, I won't go through a whole lot of that here. But um, they were carried away to Babylon for a 70-year period and then returned. And so uh, Malachi was written after their return, probably in the mid-400s to so B.C., So this would have been during the same period of time that Ezra and Nehemiah were written. So the wall of Jerusalem had been rebuilt uh, under the leadership of Nehemiah. The um, awareness of the law and, and, and respect for the law of God had been recovered, restored to some degree under Ezra. And the temple had also been rebuilt, although not as magnificently as the temple under Solomon. It wasn't as as glorious a temple. And in a sense, it was a reminder, I suppose, um, every time they went to the temple that things aren't quite what they once were. And part of their hearts are longing that they would be, again, what they once were. But they weren't, the people generally had not witnessed God moving among them, you know, in a really demonstrative sort of way they weren't experiencing miracles seeing other evidence of the supernatural Um, and so spiritually speaking it was pretty unremarkable period of time and uneventful of sorts and meanwhile as I mentioned earlier their their enemies had gone unpunished it would seem I mean that they they wanted God to come smite their enemies you know the feeling you've prayed that prayer probably before you didn't tell anybody about it, but I know. Right, they, 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 wanted, they wanted their enemies to be punished and that hadn't happened uh, at least by their standard. And so it seems they became a little cynical and began to wonder, you know, where is God? And does it even matter if we obey him or not? You know, what if we just do what we want to do? And apparently that mindset was so prevalent um, among them that in verse 17, it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And this is sort of like the parent who says, children, you are wearing me out with your whining. You've probably said that one before too, if you have children. You're wearing me out. Now, uh, this is... Assigning, as the scripture often does, I mean, assigning human attributes to God in order for humans to understand. Um, we know it is not in God's nature either to, to weary, to grow tired, to get fed up or whatever. In fact, Isaiah 40 says he, he does not grow weary. But it expresses something of, of how, how way beyond reasonable their complaining has, has been and how, how far it's gone. And so they ask, how have we wearied him? And, and Malachi says, well, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So they imply, in other words, that God is unjust, first of all, that he calls evil good and then they imply, maybe God doesn't exist at all. Where is the God of justice? In our day, it's not so much where is the God of justice as it is. Who is the God of justice? We almost don't even have a category for that in our thinking. But this is actually very much the, the, uh, the mindset of, of, of secularists and atheists, is it not? Where um, that if there is a good God then he ought to have done something about all this evil. And he hasn't done anything. And so either he's not good or he's not God. There isn't a God. That's really one of the obstacles that that many unbelievers have to believing is the idea that this allegedly good God hasn't done something about evil So either he's unjust or he doesn't exist. This is where the people of God had come to. And and one of the things that's really important for us to bear in mind here, in the front of our minds, is he is talking to the people of God here. He's talking to the people of God. And so then in God's response to Malachi, it basically implies this question, are you sure you want justice? Because It's coming. because that blade cuts both ways. And their enemies are not the only ones who have committed evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's what he goes on to say. In fact, in verse 1, you notice there it says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in the ancient Near East, when a king was going to travel um, to a faraway place, new territory or faraway land, he would send someone before him to prepare the way and move obstacles out of the way for his travel. So if, there's a, if, if a, a path or a road needed to be cut through a forest, he would send people ahead to cut it or to remove rocks out of the way, or if there's a river or stream or something that has to be traversed, um, he would prepare the way for the for the king to come unhindered, unobstructed. And here in verse one it says there's a messenger who prepares the way for another messenger. You see that? The messenger who prepares the way for the messenger of the covenant, who he also says is the Lord. And, and the New Testament identifies the messenger who will prepare the way as John the Baptist. It's in, in Mark chapter 1 and in Matthew 11, which means that the messenger of the covenant is Jesus. And so, whatever other historical fulfillment there might have been um, in uh, this prophecy among Uh, the people of that day its ultimate fulfillment is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ now I'm laboring here for a reason and I'm wanting you to look in your Bible for a reason Um, so to connect the dots that this this passage in Malachi is speaking about Jesus if you're with me say amen okay if you're not ask somebody who said amen if you can read along on their notes, so this is talking about Jesus, and and what does it say? Because it says there at the end of verse one, He is He is coming, says the Lord. But then let's continue in verses two through four. But who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring an offering in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem would be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So, uh, the, the, the refiner's fire and fuller's soap here, but these are two different metaphors that have to do with um, purification acts that, that, that purify something. So the refiner's fire would be a fire of intense heat that melts precious metals, gold or silver, and the impurities come to the surface, the dross, that can be you know skimmed off and discarded, okay? And then the refiner, over time, as that happens, can look down into the molten metal and when he can see his face um, undistorted, unobstructed by impurities, then the gold or the silver has been refined. And in a similar way, the Fuller's soap would just, it would be like a launderer's soap. In fact, the the NIV may say that. I don't remember. It seems like there's one translation that that reads that way, but it's, you know, sort of a soap-like lie or something like that. But anyway, that would whiten cloth, okay? So it would get the dirt, the filth, the the color out of it, the impurity. And that's what he's referring to here, so that um, this passage is pointing to the refining work that Jesus did himself in himself and for himself okay that Jesus completed a work of purification himself in himself and for himself here's what I mean by that that on the cross by his sacrificial death that his blood paid the penalty to purify us from our sins. Uh, Titus 2.14 says this, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. In Hebrews one three: after he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of of the majesty on high now again I'm, I'm laboring here for a couple of reasons one of which is that we understand um, that the Christian does not have to go through some purifying act like purgatory or any sort of you know suffering on this earth in order to pay for our sins Jesus paid it all can you say amen to that that he did the work of purifying that's being referred to here, that he might have a people who would bring worship to God that is acceptable, okay? He finished the work. But the other part we need to understand is that, uh, and this is the part really, frankly, that it, it seems few in the church in the 21st century even want to talk about. And that is that he came to purify in advance of his judgment. His Jesus coming in judgment. Look in verse five. Because after this purifying, he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift Witness, and then he names some of the sins. You see again, um, the, the the people of Israel here—they've got a real keen sense of what is unjust and sinful and offensive about these uh, pagan nations that have oppressed them. These idolaters, these murderers, these sexually immoral people—they see the sin of those people, and he says, "I'm drawing near to you for judgment." I'll be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in in their wages. So the the hired worker who who is at the mercy of the rich and powerful one to pay him. He doesn't have any recourse if the person doesn't pay him what he's earned. Against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless who together make a single parent household. who are in great need of the support and even mercy of other people, at the mercy of others against those who thrust aside the sojourner or the immigrant. These are the sins God calls out in the hearts of people that they don't see in themselves. They see the sins in the other, they see the sins in the pagan. They don't see the sins in their own heart. And he says, I'm coming for judgment. and i want to with with that in mind that that in other words jesus came and he's coming back to finish the job and it will be swift and it will be decisive and it will be um, judgment followed by the establishment of his kingdom and righteousness and i want to actually have you flip forward to matthew 7 quickly it's just going to be i don't depending on what bible you have uh, you know maybe 10 pages or something forward the next book, if you hang it right there, hold your finger there in Matthew in uh, Malachi. In, Ma- in Matthew seven13 uh, and 14, it, it talks about this, the, the, the rest of the story, the other side of this, that Jesus Jesus came to purify, He will come again. In judgment. And again, I'm I'm saying this knowing we hardly use Jesus and judgment in the same sentence anymore. But frankly, grace, the way the Bible lays it out for us, doesn't make sense without the other side of the coin. It, It doesn't. Um, So he says in in, uh, verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. There is a place of destruction. We call it hell. Jesus calls it hell, actually. Uh, There'll be another whole, you know... You could teach another whole series on that, but there is a place of destruction. Many are those um, who find it. And verses 21 through 23 tell us, included among those many are going to be religious folks. So let's pay attention. He says in verse 21 of Matthew seven, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, speaking of trembling, trembling, I think that verse ought to make more people tremble than it does. L- let me be sure here to, to uh, quickly uh, qualify something or whatever and, and, and avoid any confusion. Um, this does not suggest, okay, you do our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He did the work on the cross. We couldn't do it. The question, who can endure his coming? Who can stand? Nobody can. And so he did the work. It's completed. But the, but the works of righteousness that we do, our deeds in the flesh, are evidence of a truly saving faith the saving work that he's done in our hearts. Are you tracking with me? you understand the difference? That there's a correlation between the two, but not a causation. Our works don't add to our faith something that contributes and sort of fills the rest of the cup. But for the person who claims to have faith in Jesus and yet lives uh, just like any other wicked person and, and lives an unchanged life, has plenty of reason to question whether that's really a saving work that's been written in their hearts. I wouldn't tell you that if Jesus didn't say it. But because he did, I'm gonna. Okay? That as I said, there is a place of destruction. Many are gonna enter it. Many of religious people, including those who call themselves Christians. And Acts 17.31 says... So this is Paul preaching to Athens, okay? One of the most pagan cities probably on the, uh, uh, on the earth at that time. I mean, it was, there were plenty of them to go around, but I mean, thoroughly pagan. And one of the most highly cultured cities in, in the world. And when he preaches the gospel to them, his message includes that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so what, what, what we need to appreciate, this is, the, this is the good news of the gospel. That doesn't sound so good, does it? Like this is not the Merry Christmas message you were expecting. <laughs> Uh, when you came, it doesn't match the jingle bells and the gingerbread lattes of the... The good news is this, that the, the one who is appointed to judge on that day that is fixed came ahead of time on a rescue mission. That the, that the judgment is appointed, and he came in ahead of time to rescue people, a people for himself. He paid the penalty... And said that those who trust in him when he comes back will be found in him. That's good news for those who trust in him. But there's a reason why the Bible describes that day as great and terrible for those who have not. Because it will be swift it will be swift and it will be decisive. And it'll be like the buzzer going off at the end of a basketball game, right? Again, the game is over. There will no, you won't be able to, um, you know, throw up a, another shot. You'll not be able to call for instant replay to see anything. You'll, I mean, you won't even have an opportunity to make a case for your, you know, innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. There will be no doubt in God's mind who stands where on that day that is fixed and that is appointed. And, and, and we see um, again in our day what's true uh, among the people that the book of Malachi addresses, that we tend to, to be keenly aware of the injustices and offenses of other people and dull to our own. In other words, that, that, that our sense of awareness of this righteous and holy God is in how that holiness and righteousness applies to somebody else's offenses and not to our own. And it's ingrained. It's so ingrained in fallen human nature, right? So to to the point, you've probably heard a little child, um, you maybe had this experience as a parent where let's bow our heads for a prayer and you say the prayer and then after the amen, the child says, Mama, Johnny had his eyes open during the prayer. (laughs) And of course the mama says, How do you know? Uh, You know, so like nobody has to teach that child to be a little Pharisee. It just comes really (laughs) naturally, right? To commit the very offense in order to see the offense in other people. I mean, like it's, it's humorous, but just so glaringly human, right? That this is ingrained in our nature and it just becomes more serious with age. I mean, it's pretty hum- humorous and harmless for that child at that prayer. It becomes more serious um, with age. And it's, and it's gotten to the point now where uh, we're so overt and unrestrained about this that you know, in our day, um, we'll point out other people's offenses. And then if they point out our offenses, we'll point out their hypocrisy for pointing out our offenses. So they're not only evil, but they're evil hypocrites. And so whatever they say, we can just dismiss outright because who are you to tell me? And so I call these the whatabouts. I mean, you see them all over social media. It's like, you know, so we need to do something about this Russia probe. Well, what about Benghazi? You know, and um, you, could fill, you could fill in. I know I'm, I'm just, I've said the wrong thing there for some people because <laughs> don't like, don't wander off down that. Okay, come back because uh, that's not the issue. But you know, we might say, let's let's we want to defend the rights of the unborn child, and then somebody says, well, what about the rights of the children who are already here, like the children on the border? And then somebody says, well, we this is this is awful what's happening to the children on the border. And then somebody on the other side says, well, what about the unborn children? Why are you so interested in these children and you're not interested in the unborn children? Nobody's really listening to what's true about any of the questions, right, or the claims. It is just, what about? Well, what about? It's a series of volleys of what abouts. And, you know, we, as we engage in this, this, this is one of the reasons um, I've expressed concern for the people of God in this day and age. Is not because it's the issue itself, but what it cultivates in our hearts, the habits of our heart, to dismiss whatever true might be said that we need to hear because all we hear is the voice in our own head that's ready to say the next thing in our volley back and see this is exactly this is exactly what's going on in Malachi 3 among God's people That that they see clearly the offense of the nations around them and God says, I'm coming for judgment near you against social evils that they. That it's, it's as if they don't even register on their screen as evil. They're very aware of the murderousness and again, the, the idolatry and the, the, the just rampant sexual immorality and that kind of thing that came, came along those pagan cultures. Oblivious to their own. He's already mentioned their divorce in chapter two. He mentions their robbing God, with withholding their tithes. Uh, later in chapter three, and here the sorcery, the adultery, um, the oppressing the hired worker and the widow and the orphan and the surgeon or immigrant and those guys. Kind of, they don't see it at all, and that's the that's the concern for us. And so when that is revealed, what what do we what do we do? We just throw ourselves on the mercy of God. We say, Lord, forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And, and, and whether that be um, a prayer and a surrender that you have never made before, whether it be as a believer who realize that there's stuff that's crept into your heart that doesn't belong residing in the heart of a believer. It really doesn't matter because the the payment has been made. The purification work has been done. But what we don't need to do is be dismissive and indifferent about the things that matter to God. See, that is the danger. That, that that we who claim to have been given a heart of flesh a new heart when we came to faith in Jesus that there are there's not a place in our heart to care about some of the things that that God cares about it ought to make us tremble and it ought to bring us on our knees to his feet you know as as Jesus said previously in in Matthew 7, it's really for all of, all of these reasons that he said, judge not lest you be judged. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and not see the log in your own? First, take the log out of your eye. Then you'll see how to help your brother get the speck out of his. And see, what's, part of what's interesting about that is we don't then see better how to condemn our brother for the speck in his eye that once we've addressed the log in our own, we understand what it's like to have a speck, don't we? And we understand how we can help our brother get the speck out of his eye. And so when we find ourselves in that place, um, we, ought, we ought to just throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, Lord, my eyes are full of specks and logs have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now again, I know, I know that that is not the kind of Merry Christmas message uh, that you might come to church expecting, but hey, let's be honest, it's not the Happy New Year message you would want either. Um, and, it, and it wouldn't be one um, later, but but the 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 glory and the goodness of his salvation is magnified when we understand that. Oh my God, you have been so gracious to me. Thank you. How might I be gracious to those around me? Let's pray together. Lord, we... um, We do thank you for your word and even when it's hard and heavy and we pray, um, Lord, that you would reveal to ourselves what's in our hearts. It just needs to be brought before you. Lord, we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, this word ought not to be and is not intended to bring condemnation to anyone who believes in you and anyone who has been forgiven. But Lord, would you make us more keenly aware of the injustices and the offenses that we're a part of and not just those that other people are guilty of. And God, we would even ask that by doing so, starting in me, starting in us as a church and starting in the church at large, that the world would be decidedly a better place because we live by the grace that's been poured out to us. Would you make it so? In Jesus' name, amen.